Hi, my name is Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist. Thank you for joining me. It's really good to have you with me. I'm doing something a bit special today in my podcast series. Uh, I'm also moving to do a double double thing at the same time, which is to do a YouTube version of this conversation I'm having with you. And the special occasion is the soft launch of my very new book. And I'll just show you a picture of it for those who are watching on YouTube. It's called Brokenheartedness Towards Love in Professional Practice. It's been a while coming. Um, uh, but I'm really pleased to um, have been supported by a fantastic little uh, book pub independent book publishing company, Revolutionaries, to get this book to fruition uh, just before Christmas in 2023. And we'll be doing, saying a lot more about it in 2024. But I thought it would be rather cool to tell you a bit about the book, um, some excerpts from it, and hopefully get you interested in getting a copy of it. Thank you. Uh, okay, so look, maybe as I do with the books from my bookshelf um, in my podcast, I, I thought I would read uh, the back of the book to give you a sense of how the publisher is describing it. It's actually, I find it, maybe it's because it's my book, but I find it incredibly hard to describe what it's about. I mean, you have brokenheartedness and it's a big word and can mean many things and yet also it's about love. So how do these things go together? And is it the same as how most people would think about brokenheartedness um, and usually as lost love or being very hurt by someone you love? Or is it this and more? This is what the book's about. Um, so this is, this is the um, summary of the book on the back cover. I'll just read it to you. Brokenheartedness is caused by lovelessness, which in turn becomes a breeding ground for violence and injustice. Brokenheartedness is the child hurt by abuse and unfairness. It is the farmed animal afraid and alone in an abattoir. It is the mental health patient restrained and secluded. It is professional carers being unsafe in trauma-causing workplaces. It is the destroyed forest and the death of a river. Brokenheartedness is the planetary epidemic of our times, and until now, it has gone unnamed. In this path-breaking book, Dr. Deanne Ross shares her personal story interwoven with robust analyses of the causes of brokenheartedness. Evolving from this, she posits her theory and practice of love as an indispensable force for addressing and working with brokenheartedness proven significant from her career as a social worker. She writes that whatever the situation, lovelessness, violence, injustice, the answer is love, and its application is both vital and within reach. The publisher says, brokenheartedness is a must-read for any practitioner or interested individual seeking a revolutionary love-based practice. Big claims. Hey, I feel a bit nervous even just reading it. Um, and, you know, if anyone, any of you have written a book or something similar, a big, big writing project, you'll know that what ends up being in words and 
possibly behind a cover like my book isn't necessarily what you started out thinking it was going to be about. Although I had the concept of broken hardness right from the start. So so it's really kind of a little bit um, interesting to me what it has become. I didn't think I was going to be telling so much my personal story as I did, but I found in the end, just to say a few preamble things before I say a bit more directly about what some parts of the book for you. Um, I found in the end that trying to get clear what to focus on and what not to focus on was just about an impossible thing because there's so many causes of brokenheartedness. Um, and also I didn't want to presume what other people might feel or see as brokenheartedness. So it was kind of inevitable, but I was slow coming to it, that I needed to tell more of my story and link ideas that I've come by, inspiring people I've come by um, and experiences through my life, which has been very shaped by being a social worker for nearly 20, sorry, 50 years, um, that it actually gave uh, coherence to the book and it gave a logic of sorts as to why I took the kind of focuses that I did throughout the book. So, for example, most people, when they think of brokenheartedness, would be thinking of people's hearts have broken, and usually it would be broken because of someone whom they've loved has lost, have been lost to them through death or some other, other way, including relationship uh, breakdowns. So it, it's a, it was a tricky word to get a hold of and not take away from people's personal understandings so therefore I really had to put my own sense making right in the middle there and it and the sense making built up over that whole time starting from when I was a child and just was I guess to say I wasn't happy is kind of doesn't really say what my experience was and I'll tell you a little bit more about that if not in this this um recording tonight then another one very soon about my childhood and how I made sense of my experiences but um language and concepts and how we come to understand things in the social world we live in is part of what the book unpacks um and what I as a child felt was unloving at the time was what the norm was oh well that's how you discipline children that's how you treat children uh, but it's not how I felt uh, I didn't feel it was fair and I didn't feel it was loving so I put a social commentary to the my own experiences and then tell you some of the really inspiring books and experiences that have helped me think some more deeply about well, what is this thing called love and how does it relate to experiences of brokenheartedness? And if our hearts are broken because of something to do with love being lost or missing um, or not, or being violent in some way, not actually loving, what does, what does this mean for what love is if we're going to say it's actually often entwined in experiences of brokenheartedness? complex ideas <laughs> and uh, you know and then then um, as I was trying to get ready to write the book I think well who am I who am I to write about this and uh, you know there are some pretty incredible um, already incredible people who've already written about uh, love including Eric Fromm um, and his book on love is is the preeminent one that's often cited and I've got it here on my desk and it's called The Art of Loving and it is a beautiful book even though it's now you know many decades old uh, what I 
what I noticed when I was reading his work, even though I really liked his ideas, is that I wanted to bring more of a sociological, you know, a social perspective to what love is and also an ecological perspective. Um, and by ecological, I mean the interconnectivity of everything, um, summarised by the word nature or the environment, um, uh, where humans and other animals and everything of who Mother Nature is become part of what I'm interested in exploring, which I guess is a bit unusual to think of rivers as experiencing brokenheartedness or animals in an abattoir experiencing brokenheartedness. But I, it's, it's because I'm coming at this concept as a political analysis and attributing to those perceptions some level of violence or harm or lack of love, lovelessness, um, or unfair treatment to these other sentient living beings. Um, so, you know, you can imagine why the book was hard to write. <laughs> and it took me a while. Although some people say, you know, 12 months when you're working full time and whatever. It's not too long for writing the book. It just felt like a long time. And also, it was, I just wanted to only do that in that, that time, but of course, other aspects of life were happening and I had to juggle things as any writer would know. Okay, so here's the book that I didn't realise I was going to write except for the title. <laughs> With the concept brokenheartedness was right there and it comes out of a trajectory of an interest in building a theory of love. Yeah, and as I was saying, a socio-ecological theory that also doesn't negate and um, certainly embraces the psychological, emotional aspects of love and includes our other animals and nature in this concept. So the book goes on about all of that. <laughs> um, and I was just wondering whether to start at the front or the back, which is a bit of a funny thing to say because you think, well, start at the front, tell them, tell them how, you, how you came to where you got. Um, and I and I think I I think I might start at the front, even though I, I feel feel like I want to start with an apology of being the author, presuming to speak about this, and therefore starting at the back where I've written some personal essays, where I try to take responsibility for how I may have caused brokenheartedness to, toward others, to bring some humility to my writing. So, you know, if you ever come by the book, you might want to start at the back. <laughs> if you're finding what I'm saying a bit pretentious or presuming to be an expert, which I do not see myself as, then if you start at the back, you'll see the genuine, personal, usually very private grappling with what is my responsibility in the various dimensions of the big kahuna things in my life where I've either been brokenhearted myself or being witnessing someone some beings broken heartedness or cause someone's broken heartedness okay so even so I've just told you a little bit about that that satisfies that urge to start at the back of the book <laughs> and we will get to it so what I thought I'd do is um for no more than about half an hour because I don't know if people can keep a keep a focus on such heavy heavy duty stuff for too long um, I'll try and limit myself um, to half an hour at a time um, and I'll re give you a sense in a minute of how the chapters of the book are organized so you can see where we're going in a big picture sense and then um, 
I will read little little sections from each chapter and speak a little bit to them. Um, and this means that the book could go on for a very long time because <laughs> we're, we're actually going to be adding more to what the book actually says. But I think it might help us help me keep this conversational tone with you rather than just reading at you, which maybe isn't such a an interesting aspect after, um, from the listener's point of view. Okay. Um, look, just just to come to the contents page where it all is all laid out, um, how the sequence goes. So I, I do want to acknowledge the Gubby Gubby Cabby Cabby people who are the people who have been the traditional custodians for tens of thousands of years of this beautiful place where I live on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. Uh, I just feel incredible gratitude um, to the people who continue to be the custodians of this land. And when when we give acknowledgements like this, to me it's deeply, deeply political, deeply spiritual, and is is definitely meant, from my point of view, as an honouring and a never forgetting who the first people are and how country has not been ceded in Australia. So acknowledgement first up. Then there's a dedication, and the dedication um, is maybe not a Oh, sorry. The dedication comes. Um, let me read the dedication. Then I'll go back to um, another segment of the acknowledgement that um, I want to share with you. So the dedication is, and let me let me just read it a little bit to you, because um, it's kind of kind of a big statement. <laughs> I wish to dedicate this book to all the people who pivot on the pain of brokenheartedness to express love in the world. From the most private person struggling to survive and love themselves, to everyday people who take care of their families and communities' well-being, to the most public of figures who stand up to be counted at critical moments in history. It truly matters to me that you all, we all, keep choosing love often against terrible loss, violence and injustice. In so doing, I believe we align ourselves with the wisdom and life-giving force of nature. We are one with her in those moments. Okay, just backtracking a page here. Uh, the other part of the acknowledgement is uh, this speaks to the political context in which I was writing, uh, for especially the latter part of the book. And I wish to acknowledge all the First Nation leaders who stepped forward to make their incredible contribution around the voice referendum here in Australia, which was very important, a long time coming, historically, uh, more in most recent times. Uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, was the biggest gathering of First Nation groups from around Australia in current recent history. And they called for a clearly clearly attributed part of um, not a house of government but a, a body where their voice could be heard on matters that affect them. Um, and one of the leaders, and there were many, was a Mr Thomas Mayo um, and he was obviously speaking for the yes vote and how important it would be to have for First Nation people to have a voice in Australia's constitution. And so early in, in the whole unfolding of the process leading up to the referendum in April of 2023, he wrote a piece in the national newspaper that really resonated for me. 
and it was called The Right Side of History. And it was written in the same week that the Federal Leader of the Opposition directed his Liberal Party to vote no. And in that one action, it, it actually caused a terrible division in the Australian population, um, as if something could be a matter of opposition taking the opposite point of view to the government. Um, you know, it, it, it just collapsed the deeply deeply um, moral, ethical dimensions of the call for a voice to speak for themselves um, in continuing deep discrimination and oppression of many First Nation people. So at that very same time that Peter Dutton, the Liberal Party leader in Australia at the federal government level, directed his party to vote no, Mayo wrote, how he was brought to tears thinking about how truly terrible it would be for the history teachers to have to tell our children and our grandchildren in the future that the country did not support the yes vote in the referendum. This is part of what he said in that newspaper article. I hold myself together most of the time, though I'm not devoid of feelings. After all, it is predominantly love that keeps me focused, as it is love that moves us to march on the streets in protest against the all-too-regular injustices, the failed policies and harmful laws. It is the love we have for our children that gives us courage to say something new. We have never before had a constitutionally enshrined voice. And the last word I'll have in sharing sections of the book with you will be from Thomas Mayo after the referendum. Okay, so the contents page, and where is that? Must be here somewhere. Here it is. Yes, so um, the contents page has some fairly simple heading, singular headings, single word headings almost, um, which belie a lot of the complexity of what each chapter is about. And, and I'll just read them to you to give you a sense of the, f the structure of the book. So the first chapter is about lovelessness, talks about what it is, um, bring, starting with some of my personal experiences. Um, it then goes on to talk about violence, which is caused by lovelessness allows the breeding ground for violence of all types to occur so the next chapter is a really big chapter in the book on the nature of violence um, the next chapter after that is on eco injustice which are all about all types of injustice that wherever there is violence caused by lovelessness then there are injustices happening to some people animals mother nature or all three in some interconnected way so that lays out the analysis of what the issues are that cause brokenheartedness. And then the next chapter is a focus on, well, can we just get hold of this concept brokenheartedness and what does it mean? How is it different from how everyday folks might think about brokenheartedness? Then I move into speaking about the concepts that are the building blocks for a theory of love. And so love... Um, which is the way forward, um, and it's multifaceted in how I think about it. Um, Nonviolence, uh, which is doing no harm, and eco-justice, which are all forms of justice, people, animals, and nature. 
Then there's a chapter called A Theory of Revolutionary Love, where I try to pull all the points and threads of the book through together. Um, and then the last piece is called Epilogue, and that's where I write a set of, I think it's five, personal essays on how I try to take responsibility for how I may have caused brokenheartedness or tell you some personal stories of where I have experienced brokenheartedness and how I've worked to not be a victim or or to become bitter and hostile and revengeful toward others, but tried to pivot on being hurt by others. Okay, so that's the structure of the book. And we've just about used half an hour <laughs> before we got started. Hey, how about that? Well, now you know this first chapter. It's maybe the shortest one in the book, but boy, it's a, it's a fairly, fairly tricky one for me because tricky emotionally, tricky ethically. Um, it's called Lovelessness. Um, and it's, it's tricky ethically because in telling my story, and perhaps this chapter more than some of the other chapters, um, it speaks indirectly to other people in this instance, in this chapter, to my family, whom I love very much. Um, my birth, my family, I grew up with my birth family. So it, it took a lot to decide to write about myself. But I felt I needed to, in this, this chapter on lovelessness, to really get hold of how I understood, how I was, how as a child I didn't have a language for it. And of course, in, in some ways, this book is all about bringing a language to those experiences that often are unnamed, uh, but so prevalent in our society. Now, I'm just because I said I'll only speak for half an hour with you, I'm now just really aware of, yeah, I just get a sense of where I might stop so I don't try and cover the whole chapter in this introductory first session, um, give you a little sense of my experience of a child and how it really did seem to be the right place to start, despite the ethical complexities. Okay, so let me just read a little bit, then I'll speak a little bit and see if that works as a way of giving you a flavour for the book. When I was growing up, I didn't feel as though I had a voice. It wasn't that I had a physical or emotional problem that affected my ability to speak or to vocalise. I often actually felt invisible. If I was noticed, it usually meant I was a problem in some way, and I was well into adulthood before I realised when something really mattered to me as a child, I rarely spoke up for myself and my needs. In turn, it was also rare that an adult asked me how I was or what I thought about something. I was a little white poor girl from the wrong side of town. I lived in a small housing commission house with my seven siblings and parents. It was a very crowded, busy and noisy household, and I'm sure I contributed to the noise at times. But deep down inside, I felt that to speak up for myself was impossibly hard, was a possi impossibly hard thing to do. I do remember occasions when, in desperation, I would try to make myself sick so I could stay home from school and be alone in the house with my mother. Maybe then I would get the care I craved. For much of my childhood, though, in fact all of it, because I was one of the older ones, um, there, were, there were little ones not yet at school clamouring for their own attention, and rightly so. 
As one of the older kids, I found some comfort in helping care for my little brothers and sisters and doing jobs around the house. Maybe if I was a good girl, I would get noticed and be appreciated. Sometimes I was noticed, but mostly I wasn't. For my mother, the daily household tasks were so all-encompassing that one less child clamouring for attention was a blessed relief. As a, as a child, uh, it, the, what we're seeing on television just didn't fit with what was happening in our family. When, yeah, when I was frightened and confused, I was very alone. Being alone in a crowded family situation was, unsettling, was an unsettling kind of aloneness. I had no sense of other children's home life and if it was the same as mine. I had no words to speak about it or to get support from kids or adults at school. This loneliness and feeling of being invisible and silenced and unworthy was, I didn't have those words. I didn't, didn't know there was something different for me and didn't even know how my own brothers and sisters felt in the same house. School might have been the place where I could find my voice, but I was shy and didn't push myself forward in class. I soon found a classroom full of other kids my age was not that much different from home. I remember being almost paralysed with fright in my last year of high school when I was made a prefect, which is a student leadership role. I couldn't believe I'd even been noticed and given such an important responsibility. I was part of a group of prefects and one of the tasks was speaking at school assemblies. I would shake so badly, I would be deeply embarrassed and it took all my willpower to make words come out of my mouth. My handwritten notes saved me. I could focus on reading the thoroughly rehearsed speech and block out all the eyes looking at me. There was also the shame of being poor and not having the right school uniform, which was compounded when standing in front of the whole school. I learnt along the way that having no voice was easier to bear than being given a voice and being so terrified. So I'll just read a fraction more and then make a couple of comments for this this session anyway, um, to set the scene a little bit for how this concept, brokenheartedness, eventually came to really encapsulate these experiences for me and so many others. Bit by bit, I gained a fledgling sense of self-esteem that came from this experience of being a student leader. It was pivotal to how I was able to come to claim my voice and with that my place in the world. I decided I was probably as smart as the other kids in my graduating class, which was a pretty radical thought because nobody ever said I was smart (laughs) and my grades were pretty mediocre. Um... With this thought, though, I focused on doing my homework better than I ever had before. I was usually too tired and at home there was no space or flat surface to write upon and no quiet time to study. I cleared enough of the kitchen table to fit my books on it and sat in the middle of all the mayhem and comings and goings and studied. In so doing, I claimed for the first time, I must have been about 15, my right to do well at school, no matter what was happening at home. The gift, which has fortified me ever since, took the form of the first flickers of confidence in writing as a way to have a voice. As I went on to higher education, I literally wrote myself into being a person and to having a future, 
one assignment at a time. So that's as far as I'll, I'll go with this introductory commentary about the book um, and sharing with you some parts from it. But you can see in here um, where I place myself right in the middle of the story, um, not to be self-aggrandizing in the least, but to really, really draw on some old memories and influences in my life to, to see, see if this word works, see if this word brokenheartedness works. And see if the word, the idea of love, was, was there love in the home? How come I felt so, like there wasn't? Um, and I'm sure my parents felt they were being loving. And, you know, like, so lots of complex questions. Uh, this, this is what I build on to go through the book. And next time I'm sharing with you, I'll finish that first chapter so we get hold of this concept of lovelessness, um, which is what I came to understand was the cause of the experiences of feeling invisible, unworthy, not listened to, not having a voice. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying my parents weren't loving. I'm saying that there was a disconnect uh, on many levels in the circumstances of their life and how I then experienced how they treated me. All right. Um, it, it will become clear when we go a little bit further into this chapter what, what the context of our home life was and why that was so seriously negatively impacting for me. Okay, so there we go. Got started on sharing my book with you. I hope you're a little bit interested and feel that, or a lot interested, and feel that you'd be um, wanting to wait wait for the next one and check that out as well thank you so much thank you for for sharing this moment with me i appreciate it bye now